<clears throat> For those who are joining us this evening, we have been looking at uh, the life of Jacob in our evenings together and have been following uh, something of or tracing something of God's work of grace uh, in this uh, man's life. How a man who is a schemer uh, ultimately comes to a place where he calls God his God. And this evening uh, we're turning to uh, a rather difficult passage uh, in Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father uh, and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for a great uh, a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say uh, to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughter, daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. 
when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt uh, secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? As mentioned, we have been uh, looking at the life of Jacob together. And we have been looking at... um, really how Jacob teaches us so many lessons about the life of faith. But one of the things that we see when we start to survey the life of Jacob is how much trial and tragedy mark his life. There was the tragedy over his family split. You remember that Jacob had deceived his father in order to take the family blessing, the the patriarchal blessing. Uh, But that act caused a rift in the family. Uh, Jacob had to flee for his life because Esau was going to kill him. For 20 years, those brothers lived estranged from one another. And so those actions that Jacob did had long-reaching consequences. There was the tragedy in his own family. There was also the trial and the tragedy when Jacob was away in Padam Aram. Even when Jacob prospered, his, his herds grew uh, he enjoyed uh, uh, a growth in his, in his herds. At the same time, he experienced a lot of tension with his father-in-law, Laban, uh, and Laban's sons. And so ultimately, Jacob was directed away from Padam Aram and to return to his kindred. But there was also the tension and the tragedy, uh, even in Jacob's marriages. Uh, Jacob married both Rachel and Leah, And that uh, polygamous arrangement brought all kinds of bitterness and resentment uh, between the sisters. And so as you begin to step back and look at Jacob's life, you see so many problems that accompany him from one stage to another stage. Even in Genesis 33, you remember that he came and he encountered his brother Esau. But in that sense, a crisis was averted. Because Esau welcomed his brother. He did not want to kill him. He did not still harbor a resentment. 
But the brothers embraced and wept over one another. And so one crisis was averted. And yet, as we come back to Jacob's story, we see that, as is often true in our own lives, one trial or one tragedy can oftentimes be followed by another trial and by another tragedy. And that's true in the life of Jacob. While his, his separation from Esau was obviously a big factor in his life, a big part of his story, there were other things that happened to Jacob. And this evening we want to look at one of the tragedies that came against Jacob's family. We want to look at what happened to his daughter, Dinah. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 34. As we're turning to this passage, you remember at the end of chapter 33, it tells us that he came to the land or the city of Shechem. And that he purchased a piece of land and set up residence there. It tells us that Shechem was in the land of Canaan. And so God had been faithful. He had come back to the land of his kindred. He had been brought back, just as the Lord had said, uh, to the land that was the land of promise. But Shechem should strike us funny. Why is he stopping in Shechem? That question comes to the the forefront of our minds when we start to trace backwards the encounters that Jacob had had with his God. You remember that when Jacob fled for his life, he had a dream. The dream of the ladder, the dream of the staircase with angels ascending and descending. You remember that the Lord's presence was in that dream. That when Jacob awoke, he said, God was in this place. God is in this place and I did not realize it. That place was Bethel, the house of God. And it was at Bethel that God promised Jacob to be with him wherever he went. He would protect Jacob and that he promised he would bring him back. You remember that when he was in the region of Padamaram, when he was there with Laban and God came to Jacob and told Jacob, it's time to leave. It's time to go back to the land of your kindred. God came to Jacob and said, I am the God of Bethel. And so now as Jacob is making his way back to Canaan, as he is setting up an altar commemorating God's faithfulness to doing everything that he said he would do, God has brought me back, as he said. God has protected me and delivered me even from the wrath of Esau. Jacob set up residence in Shechem, a mere 20 or 30 miles from where Bethel was. Not quite where we would expect him to come full circle to the very place where God had made that promise. But before Jacob ultimately gets to Bethel, and he will get to Bethel, you can read on in chapter 35, and it tells us that God instructs him to keep going, go to Bethel. But before he gets there, something happens to Jacob and his family in Shechem. And that is what we want to look at this evening. The tragedy uh, that comes, the misery that comes on this family. And so we want to look this evening at, because uh, disgraceful things happen in a fallen world, we need to look to God to know how to respond. We want to think about this chapter in three thoughts. We want to think first about the disgraceful act that takes place. Secondly, the deceitful agreement. And then thirdly, the dilemma. First, then, there is 
a disgraceful act that takes place. It tells us that Dinah was the daughter of Leah and that she went out to see the women of the land. She's described in this passage as being a young woman, perhaps a teenager. She wants to go out to see the women of the land, an innocent act, uh, wanting to uh, see what, uh, what the, the bigger world is like. And so it's this curiosity that drives her out to explore and to see things in the world. Uh, but this seemingly innocent act ultimately takes a tragic turn uh, and brings all kinds of suffering. We're told that as a result of this, Shechem, the son of Hamor, uh, saw her and then he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. Those three descriptions all have an underlying connection of force. Uh, that they all underscore this was something that was done to Dinah. This was something done by Shechem uh, as an act of force against her. He seized her. He took her. Uh, he used her as an object. This was not something with her, but done to her. And then it says that he humiliated her. That's the same word that is used elsewhere in scripture to describe the experience of the Israelites when they would go down into the land of Egypt. That they would be oppressed by the Egyptians for a period of time before they would come up uh, again. They would be afflicted by the Egyptians. Or as we could translate it here, they would be humiliated by the Egyptians. And so what Shechem does here is something wicked. It is something that ought not to be done. But he uses uh, Dinah as an object of his own personal gratification. What Shechem did was shameful. It's not the kind of thing that we want to read about in our Bibles. But it's in our Bibles because it's in our world. It's in our Bibles because we live in a fallen world. And the Bible is helping us learn to deal with sin honestly and directly. In his book, Rid My Disgrace, Justin Holcomb shares many of the statistics about sexual assault. One in four women will experience sexual assault during their lifetime. One in six men will be sexually assaulted. This is the part of the experience of many people in a fallen world. When someone will use their power, their ability, their force to find pleasure themselves against others, not uniting together, but controlling another person for their own gratification. Those who suffer from sexual assault not only suffer physically, but they also suffer emotionally in terms of fear and distrust psychologically in terms of confusion about the reality of things and even spiritually about their view of self and their view of God. What is being accented here about what happens to Dinah is, is that what happens to her is a great evil. It is something wrong. It is not something neutral. It is not something that is merely distasteful. It is wrong. And we need to be clear on that. We need to be clear as to what is right and what is wrong. And not to shrink away from having moral convictions about what is proper and what is improper. There are three other descriptions that are given here that further complicate this 
whole scenario. It tells us that Shechem was still drawn to Dinah, that he loved the young woman, and that he spoke tenderly to her. Very unlike Amnon, who after he had Tamar didn't want anything to do with her, that he was disgusted with her and wanted her to be put away. Here, Shechem maintains a strong attraction for Dinah, but no confession uh, is given of wrongdoing. This situation is further complicated by the fact that Dinah is later on described as remaining at Shechem's house. Whether that was of her own choosing or not is uncertain. But even if it was of her own choosing, uh, it may be that Shechem spoke tenderly to her and persuaded her that he truly did love her, and so she stayed. But one of the effects of sexual violence is confusion, that it brings upon victims about making sense of what is true. And so we have this very messy situation where Shechem has treated another person as an object for his own pleasure. He wants her. He wants to have her as his own. There is this emotional attraction that continues where he is still drawn to her. But there is no sense of what is proper or no sense of boundaries. There is an obscuring of what love ought to be, a commitment. There is no honoring of what marriage is all about. But rather it is simply of seizing what one wants. And so we have this uh, um, act that takes place uh, that is uh, disgraceful, something that ought not to be done. But not only is it a disgraceful act that is recorded, but there's a reaction that is also disgraceful. It should rub us the wrong way to hear that when Jacob discovered that this had happened to his daughter, that he passively, uh, passively held his peace. In contrast with Jacob, his sons reacted in a very different way. They were indignant. They were very angry about this outrageous thing that did take place. Again, that word outrageous is a strong word. It's not used very often in scripture. But it's a word that is used to describe when someone rejects God's salvation. It's a word that is used to describe when someone shows contempt to their parents. It is saying that this is something repugnant. This is something that should not be. This is something that must be removed. This cannot be tolerated. And so here, this action is described, even as we see the various responses, uh, the sons of Jacob recognize that this is not right. It is things like this that serve as vivid reminders that we do live in a fallen world, a world where people will force themselves on others in order to please themselves. But it's here in Genesis because it's forcing us to think about evil. It's forcing us to think about right and wrong. We are more and more finding ourselves in a culture where people don't want to make moral judgments, where people are averse to making any kind of moral standards for all people. But when we look at something like this, how do you respond? There are, there are some who would even say that what is happening here is simply evolutionary development of reproductional imperatives. 
It's just people trying to reproduce. There's nothing really wrong about this. There's other people that would say it's distasteful. There's other people saying it's because it was not invited, that it shouldn't be uh, practiced. But is it wrong? Is it evil? And on what grounds can we come to that conclusion? As disturbing as something like this is to read in the Bible, that someone would try to control another person like this, to use them like an object, it should force us to come to a matter of conclusion. Do I believe in right and wrong? Do I believe that there are things that are evil to be done? Do I believe that there is a standard that we are all accountable to? Not just my personal preferences, but that as an image bearer, as a creature made by God, we are to treat one another in a certain way and to respect those boundaries. That's, that's something that this passage is pressing on us. Are we going to be passive towards evil? Or do we really recognize and believe that there are certain things that are wicked and outrageous? And so we see this happening in Shechem. Jacob's daughter uh, is used and uh, abused as an object. But we also read about a deceitful arrangement that, by Jacob's sons, a further act of disgrace. It tells us that Shechem's father, Hamor, came to Jacob explaining that his son wanted to marry Dinah. But he also came with a proposal. He thought that perhaps they could unite together their peoples and become one people. Uh, that if Jacob gave his daughter uh, to uh, Shechem, then their daughters could be given to the sons of Jacob. They could become one people. The problem with that is, is that it would compromise the distinctiveness of the offspring of Abraham as a people consecrated to the Lord. You remember that Abraham separated himself from his family. You remember that Abraham made his servants swear that he would not take a daughter of the Canaanites to marry Abraham's son. There was something of defining of the people of God. They were to be separate unto the Lord. They were to be devoted to the Lord and not to be uh, simply uh, blending into the world so that they could not stand apart. They were to be consecrated first and foremost uh, unto God. But you notice here that uh, uh, Hamor tells the people of Shechem also what they want to hear. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? The sons of Israel then would have been enveloped into the people of Shechem. And Hamor was crafty enough to tell each side uh, a different story. So now Jacob's sons could have responded to this. They could have been honest. They could have told Shechem what he did is wrong. They could have confronted him with his sin. They could have explained to him the God of Israel. They could have explained to them how to be reconciled with the living God. But the sons of Jacob chose a different route. They chose instead to get their, their vengeance uh, themselves. And so it tells us that they told them that they could not uh, allow this marriage to take place. Uh, instead, that uh, as long as Shechem was uncircumcised, uh, there could be no union. What was circumcision? 
circumcision was the cutting off of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. It was a ceremony, a bloody ceremony. Um, It was a a ceremony that was practiced by several cultures, even outside of Israel. In some cultures, it was a ceremony that was practiced when one entered into adulthood, or when one was at marriageable age. But for the people of Israel, it wasn't simply a cultural ritual. It wasn't just simply saying one is now an adult. It was rather a rich symbol of the promises of God of God's covenant that he had made with Abraham. You remember in Genesis 17, it says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The apostle Paul explained that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith. Circumcision was something important Because it communicated the promises of God. It communicated righteousness and the blessing of God coming to the nations. By the offspring of Abraham being sacrificed. The blood communicating death. The shedding of blood communicating sacrifice. That, the, that God's sign of blessing was ultimately connected with a bloody ritual because God's blessing would come when the Messiah was cut off. When the offspring of Abraham came into this world to bring about righteousness. That the righteous one died for the unrighteous in order to make the unrighteous righteous. And so circumcision was an important sign. It communicated the gospel. But now here are these sons of Jacob that are saying, unless you're circumcised, we can't intermarry. But what they're really doing is is they are weaponizing a sacred rite, a sacred ceremony that communicated God's promises in a trivializing way in order to weaponize it against them. They didn't see, the the people of Shechem didn't attach any significance to this ceremony. They didn't see themselves as committing themselves to the God of Israel. Uh, It shouldn't be any surprise by that. But what a sad commentary when the sons of Jacob will handle God's signs in such a trivializing way when they will treat these visual promises that God gives and to deplete them of their significance as the sons of Jacob did. But we can see the same thing happening even in the the church today, can't we? Do we not hear sometimes of people who want to come forward to be baptized? Not because they believe in the Lord Jesus, but because they want to marry someone in the church. Do we not hear of people who want to come and to take the Lord's Supper, not because they believe they're in union with Christ and feeding on him by faith, but because of a means to an end. I need to be acknowledged so that I can get what I really want on the other side. People can play fast and loose with God's sacred promises, just as the sons of Jacob were willing to do it, in their own context. 
against their enemies. And so the sons of Jacob here were not interested in having the people of Shechem come to know the God of Abraham and of his promises, but instead they were coldly calculating how to attack them. They were waiting until they were sore. And then we're told that on the third day, Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, go on the attack and they win for vengeance. They killed the men of the city and they took their sister and then they plundered the city and took whatever they wanted from the city and from the field. A disgraceful act by Shechem, abusing a person and using them as an object, is now compounded by another disgraceful act by the sons of Jacob and how they bring such violence on their neighbors and how they desecrate God's promises. And so now all of a sudden, Jacob has a dilemma. What is he to do? You notice that when Jacob heard about this in verse 30, that Jacob rebuked his, uh, his sons for their actions. But his rebuke falls flat in many ways. It falls flat because of what he does not say. And it falls flat because of what he does. It falls flat because of what he does not say. Because he does not actually call them out for their uncontrolled rage. He does not call them out for weaponizing the symbols of God's promises. He does not say anything about Dinah. But what Jacob does say is is that he is concerned about the ramifications of their actions. He's concerned about the consequences of what they have done. And so Jacob is still acting in a passive form to this whole situation. And so it does seem that the brothers appear to have a moral high ground when they say, should they treat our sister like a prostitute? So we have these very polarizing responses to outrageous things, evil that happens in this world. When people do things that they ought not to do, we see two very different responses. We see Jacob, who is tolerant and passive, who doesn't act, he doesn't intervene. And we see the sons of Jacob who want justice, who want vengeance, who are not going to wait. Which one responded correctly? Was it the, Jacob's silence or was it the son's massacre? Neither response was faithful and neither response was satisfying. The moral outrage of Jacob's sons was right, but their response was wrong. It was disproportionate and it was uncontrolled. Even at the end of his life, if you go to Jacob's blessing of his sons, you will realize that Jacob continued to distance himself from his sons. That he did not want to be associated with their anger, with their violence and their rage. He did not approve of what they were doing. But their actions also did not promote peace. They would only fuel further hostility and death. But Jacob's passivity was also problematic. To remain silent as he did left the clan appearing weak and unable to protect his own people. He did nothing for Dinah. 
And so what protection is there to doing nothing? Part of the reason why we do not like addressing evil is because we cannot set all wrongs right. But part of the reason why we don't like addressing evil is because we know that ultimately we have compromised ourselves. Did not Jacob just receive mercy himself from Esau? Jacob, no doubt, didn't feel the courage to be able to stay to say much when he himself had compromised morally in his own life. And the same can be true of us. Sometimes we just want to be passive because we know at the end of the day, if we dig hard enough, we'll all be found wanting. That's one of the problems even with this whole social justice movement. The more we look to find fault with what has happened, the more everyone gets condemned in the end. None of us will be left standing. And so this pursuit of simply wanting to condemn evil does not make room for peace. To simply be tolerant and to do nothing does not make for peace. It does not protect. It does not promote righteousness. There are some things that we can't fix ourselves. And Jacob's life is one of trial and tragedy. And that carries on through Jacob's life. But ultimately, it should drive us to looking to God. Because only God can ultimately set the wrongs right. When we acknowledge God, we can steer clear of both errors that are described here. God does not remain passive towards evil. God intervened by sending his son into this world to deliver people from their sin and from their shame by experiencing the shame of the cross in the place of sinners. Jesus came into this world not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Jesus came to restore dignity to those who have been afflicted by sin. And the outcome of Jesus' intervention is, is that it establishes peace and that it makes a way for righteousness. That's something that neither one was doing, Jacob or Jacob's sons. Christianity shows us how to avoid the two extremes of moral apathy towards evil and a condemning legalism that will ultimately result in all of us found wanting. The gospel instead gives us courage. Courage to speak the truth because we're not controlled by what others think. And courage to be controlled by God's grace, not to take vengeance ourselves. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so as you read in Hebrews 4, It says we have a great high priest, one who is able to sympathize with us, one who was tempted in every way but without sin. So therefore we are to appeal to our great high priest. Why? Because he will help us in our time of need and he will give us grace. In Christ we find mercy for sin. In Christ we find courage to address it. And so we are 
finding ourselves in a world where there is so much disgraceful things that happen. What do we do? Things that we have done ourselves. Things that have been done towards us by others. Ultimately, we need to look to God that we wouldn't be crushed by a sense of worthlessness, that we wouldn't be crushed by a sense of uh, our own inadequacy, but rather to look to God ultimately to deliver us from sin. And so we have courage to trust in God and not to be controlled by our emotions. Jacob's story is one of tragedy and of trial. One trial after another trial after another trial. If the life of Jacob teaches us something, it's that we have to know how to face trials, how to face real tragedies. The life of Jacob is teaching us that we need God. Because left to ourselves, we'll only make foolish decisions. But there is a God who can make all things right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would not be people who refuse to weigh in on moral actions, but that we would realize that we are moral creatures, that what we do towards others is not towards objects, but towards living human beings, towards image bearers, towards those who are created to reflect the character of God. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have sinned against others, that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have been silent, for the ways in which we have looked down upon others with a condemning attitude, forgetting that we too have fallen short of the glory of God. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, avoid these extremes, to be able to respond in faith, knowing that your truth is a reliable guide, knowing that the Lord Jesus came in to deliver us from sin, from disgrace, and that ultimately you are a God who can set all things right. Bless us now, then we pray, and lead us and guide us for Jesus' sake. Amen.